These fucking teenagers, the show where we subject Gossip Girl and Glee, but this week Glee to a level of scrutiny they definitely deserved. It's a three-way for this episode. Uh, I nearly said it's a three-way this week, but we don't do um, uh, we don't OM, do, OM three. We don't do weekly episodes uh, this month, <laughs> this quarter, <laughs> <laughs> quarter the, the occasional podcast, the quarterly podcast. Uh, I'm Matthew Rather. We're here with Jordan Stokes and Ryan Sheely, and the agenda on the syllabus for today um, is uh, Glee. Our wrap up, our long promised but never delivered wrap up. This is our, our winter, our winter module. I believe is what this is. <laughs> this is the January term. This is the yeah, you the know, G term. <laughs> Where you the go? To <laughs> Today we're we're overthinking stage combat and uh, what intensive Chinese. <laughs> the VJJ term, basket weaving. Um, yeah. All right, yeah. So this is the VJJ term. After this VJJ episode, we will uh, we'll probably go on hi- hiatus for a little while. Um, until but- <laughs> again, is hiatus a meaningful word for this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we will return to hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> we will return you to your regularly scheduled hiatus. Uh, uh, sorry, these fucking is a long hiatus punctuated by occasional break breaks of podcast <laughs> podcasting. Yeah, of content. Like in in probabilistic terms, you're not actually listening to this right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> right. Um, or, it's true on several levels, actually. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, you know, like, really, correl- correlation is uh, is not causation. So the fact that these podcasts happen after episodes of, of Glee and Gossip Girl does not mean that the, uh, the episodes of Glee and Gossip Girl have caused episodes of these fucking teenagers. Yeah, shit can't cause me to do anything. Ah, fuck, I, I mean... coffee all over my pants. <laughs> That's how excited we are to talk about these last through three episodes of Glee, folks. We've got uh, going in reverse order. <laughs> you like that? You like I just jumped right into the breach there? Um. We'll be back. Okay, so after after uh, after this episode, we'll be back la- uh, when the shows return. Oh, Glee is not taking a hiatus for American Idol. I I found that out. They're moving American Idol to a different night, and so Glee is uh, Glee is continuing. Glee is likely to continue doing better than American Idol, right? Because like, mm-hmm. American Idol is a little tired. They're actually the difference between Glee and American Idol. Their similarities and differences are actually. M- Maybe an interesting thing to talk about, but that's not on the agenda at all. So, uh, can, can we put it on there? It's actually very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's as, okay. opposed, as opposed to the garbage that's on the agenda. Yeah, right. <laughs> let's, I mean, let's, uh, Let's digress into that. I think here's here's the thing that I think is interesting about that. It's it's about cover songs. You know, it's about mm-hmm. like what kind what kind of songs um, uh, you cover and and people want to sing. What kind of songs do you want to sing and do people want to hear? Um, in a group that's that's primarily interpretive, and we think of you know we think of. Uh, Glee clubs or, you know, the people on American Idol, kind of singers. They're not singer-songwriters. They're just kind of 
recording artists or kind of music performance artists, we think of them as interpretive artists rather than uh, original artists, originating artists, I should say, um, as people whose primary work is to kind of filter uh, already established material through their own unique perspective. Um, and, and, that, and that presents a vision of what a pop star is, right? That a pop star is someone who, who does that, need not be a, a singer-songwriter or, you know, any kind of auteur, but is just an a excellent performer, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the auteur, I mean, the auteur thing is, is very interesting because it's, um, I, think, I think the dichotomy that I would like to propose, at least one axis of this, uh, this multi matrix. Two by two, or are, we talk, are we looking at a cube? A cube moving through space, <laughs> maybe a hypercube <laughs> through time. Maybe a hypercube, a, yeah, maybe a four-dimensional. Well, at least one axis, one dimension on this is, or, or I should say, one continuum is the continuum between auteur and brand, right? Because Britney, Britney Spears, who I think is the, I don't know, the kind of the er example of this. Uh, of the kind of the manufactured pop star, as opposed to someone like Madonna, who we imagine, or Lady Gaga, who we imagine have some kind of agency in their, um, uh, in their kind of production of themselves. Uh, Britney Spears, we imagine, doesn't. And it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, it says something about foul logocentrism, that like her, her kind of life is under um, conservatorship, Right, and her father kind of makes all her business and personal decisions and things like this. Right, right now, you know, it's the uh, it's the name of the father. It's uh, it's third wave French feminism. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's uh, Ellen Sissou and Lucy Rigure and and uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Kristeva. Right, um, y- you know, being lived out in front of us. So she's a brand, and the songs that she sings have a kind of cohesion because she sings them because they're they're manufactured to kind of be shoehorned into that that brand but we don't think of them as we don't think of her as the author of that brand you know she's not really an she's not really an uh an artist of herself and uh, you know for her we don't even imagine her bringing all that much to the mix compare a pop star like uh Christina Aguilera who uh though she I don't think she writes all her own her own material, um, we think of her as bringing something to the mix through the kind of the, the technical craftsmanship of what she sings. And then I'd propose that someone like Susan Boyle, right, belongs on that, on that kind of brand end of that continuum as well. But we imagine that she makes a kind of original contribution through, uh, through her own talent. On the other uh, end are the singer-songwriters of, of, say, the 70s, like, you know, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, those people who were in their way pop stars at the time, but who are responsible, who we, who we imagine are responsible for a lot more of their product, right? And you see that now, though, even, I mean, there's, you know, still a tremendous amount of discourse of authenticity in the, you know, the mainstreaming of indie rock and, you know, even before that, the mainstreaming of, of emo, right, where being the author of, of the lyrics was, was very important, right? That if, you know, it, you know, that would, it would be like, you know, I, I could imagine like a, the, the emo, the emo wiki leaks, if like it were revealed that like a songwriting syndicate were behind dashboard confessional, like it would be a big right. deal, right? <laughs> yeah. Constantine, sure. Constantine was actually written by a team of Swedish, you know, pop music composers. 
So I, I love that so we've talked about this before in the show, but how, how did uh, the song Constantine by Something Corporate become for you to be the touchstone of emo rock? Because um, yeah, here's the one emo song you know. No, 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 it's, it's not at all <laughs> I, the one emo song I know. Um, uh, you know, I, I listen to how, how could How were we even in an emo band together? <laughs> um, I actually, I, I, I sometimes ask Ryan for music recommendations because he is much more abreast of kind of interesting developments in indie rock uh, music. Uh, I, I like this. This is going to go in like a real passive aggressive turn. This is going to blow blow up right in my face. I hear where this, I see where this is going. <laughs> and I and I once asked Ryan, "Hey, I, I'm kind of interested in in this emo thing. I hear so much about." You're throwing it back in my face. <laughs> can you make me? Can you make me a mixtape? Uh, since you're my girlfriend, apparently, yeah. can you you know can you make me a mix CD? And you know there was a lot of uh, Dashboard Confessional, there was a lot of Death Cab, there you know um, uh, a lot of good stuff. The on Get that. Up Kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there. It was a good. It was a really good mixtape. Uh, I believe you entitled it Tenacious E. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I was really, I, I was really putting on the charm. Huh? Yeah, you were, you were swinging for the fences with this one, right? But, uh, but the song, the song at the center of it, the one that I, that I was most taken uh, uh, with, both in a parodic and also kind of a non-parodic way, because a, it's piano based, and I like any piano based rock and roll music. Being a piano player myself, who was always excluded from the rock bands when I was in junior high school, mm-hmm. uh, the days of grunge, you know. Um, I don't care if it's fucking Billy Joel. I'll, you know, I'll listen to that piano, piano rock music, right? Like, uh, um, I don't care if it's like easy listening adult contemporary at this point. I, you know, I'm, I'm there for it. Uh, so it was piano centered and it was also, it had, it had that kind of whiny about nothing. It had that kind of like a bunch of white people and their problems uh, quality that I found so captivating in, um, <laughs> in the emo music that, uh, that you gave to me, you know? Um, any, a- anyway, so that's, that's why it's... I, I realized that, that since then, in the... In the um, what shall we say? Six or seven years since then, emo music has evolved, uh, and it's a, it's rather a different thing. It became rather a different thing, and it's rather a different thing now. But that's that's how it got to be like that uh, for me. You made me a mixtape. <laughs> I, th- I feel like that's the one that really barely made the cut, though. That's the interesting thing. Um, huh. Huh. Like, there's something turned into my favorite. That's <laughs> that'll show you how bad my taste is. There's something very exactly. authentic, authentic about it, though, because the emo song that you like is the one that reminds you of being left out in high school, which is really what emo music is, is most <laughs> fundamentally about, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And about how, how you really want girls, but they don't understand the unique poetical soul of, of, you know, that you possess. Just, just to derail us a little bit further. Um... <laughs> Um, I, I swear we're going to bring this back to uh, to, to Glee, but this discussion about about emo and thinking about it, like I, I, I sort of my mind wandered to why aren't there any emo songs that are sung on on Glee? Because a lot of this experience of being an outsider, um, you know, in, in Glee is channeled through pop music, whereas in you know, in at least my own. Um, uh, you know, experience as an outsider in scare quotes was about, you know, finding underground mu- music, you know, first in, in high school, that was, um, you know, like hardcore punk and then the associated, um, you know, 
underground emo at, at the time. And it made me think of why is, is there neither pop emo nor, you know, uh, nor, nor something that, you know, is more emo in, in the world of Glee. And then that led my mind to thinking about actually a bit of emo that has percolated into the sort of, uh, the world of theater um, recently, which is this musical um, I don't know if either of you are familiar with called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which is billed as a emo musical about Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, um, in which uh, you know emo-esque music and lyrics and sentiment and skinny jeans and asymmetrical haircuts are used uh, to tell the story of uh, of, the, of the Jacksonian era of American history, um, including the, the main, the best number being uh, uh, called "Populism, Yeah, Yeah." Um, oh, it's not. It's not like there's a trail of tears down my face because you told me you didn't love me or something. There's a little bit of that. There's definitely a um there's definitely a there's definitely a song about bigamy um and and there's definitely some songs about bloodletting but you're right the numbers don't have that kind of panic at the disco style like you know long sentence with many like subordinate clauses uh way of way of titling um songs um which is which is a shame um oh, but it's interesting disco, another another band that was rec- represented on that mixtape that you gave to me really <laughs> No, so. no, oh, that can't I, be true. Am I in the wrong era? <laughs> that can't be true. That can't be right. Take that back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. This is a matter of public record. My students might be listening to this, and they can't. They can't know that I ever put "Panic at the Disco" on a mixtape <laughs> for my. Gonna, yeah, for, I think it was probably friend. it was Fallout Boy, but it was one of the songs from before they they made it big. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> this is very important. <laughs> I, I understand. I, I understand and apologize. I would go Thank so you. far as to say that, uh, that populism in itself is very non-emo. Could you please unpack that? Well, because isn't populism about uh, appealing to the broadest common denominator? Hmm. And while while emo kind of does that, and I don't know if there are too many people who would seriously say that emo is the most exclusive music uh, to exist in the world, it it kind of like pretends at least to be an outsider's music and Mm -hmm. defines itself against like uh, the mass. Yeah, I mean, hang on, hang on. Let me let me uh, let me double back on myself because populism is an outsider thing too. But what it's defining itself against is like the fat cat Washington insider. Exactly, and that's that's how it was definitely set up. Um, that's absolutely how it was set up in this musical. That it was Andrew Jackson was threatening to the the the. Washington establishment at the time, the, mm. the Henry Clays and the John Quincy Adams. Um, and, and so that, you know, that the, the masses, um, you know, the, the sort of out in the woods yokels who are, who are fighting the Indians are, you know, um, they, they just don't understand. The man just doesn't understand. And Andrew right. Jackson is the, the violent, um, you know, somewhat misogynist, somewhat skinny jeans wearing. Um, <laughs> no, no, they, they really talk about how tight his pants are. Um, it's a, it's, it's, the musical doesn't entirely work, um, but I, I'm glad it exists. Um, <laughs> Much like Glee in that way. <laughs> There we go. 
So I think that like so American Idol. Long story short, American Idol and Glee say something different about cover songs and what we want from interpretive artists, uh, right? And like um, we were talking in in our pre-show, Ryan suggested that there were there were different. Um, uh, discourses of what uh, what ought to be covered. You know what I mean. There are kind of different normative claims made about what a glee club should uh, should be covering. Well, that's right, and that's why I, again I was thinking. I, maybe that's also why my mind went to bloody bloody Andrew Jackson and to musicals in general. Is that there really are kind of two camps of of you know two broad types of songs that are that are on glee. There's the um, there's the Broadway songs and like the associated standards that are like not from Broadway shows, but are of that era. And I like recognize have enough like little triggers that I say, Oh, that's a Broadway uh, song in quotes. I mean, I think of the baby it's cold outside as being kind of in that mix as well. We can talk about whether that is an apt classification uh, or not. And then the, the, uh, the rest are, are the, the pop songs, right? And there are, are you know, ver- uh, multiple camps within the you know, social world of Glee about what kind of pop ought to be sung, whether it should be Journey or, or whether it should be the, you know, current pop, the, the pop that the, song, the kids want to sing, uh, which is the issue that came up um, in the Gwyneth Paltrow episode where they sing uh, CeeLo's Fuck You. CeeLo's um, <laughs> Forget You, right? <laughs> Not in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes, they, they, uh, no, they, sang, they sang Bruno Mars's Forget You instead of CeeLo's Fuck You. Um, <laughs> And, and, and yeah, so, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know. I mean, even though I spent, you know, a good five minutes, you know, telling you guys about a, a Broadway musical, like I, I generally, you know, my brain kind of tunes out a lot more, you know, on a lot of the Broadway numbers. Um, whereas a lot of my favorite songs, I believe the things that I both, you know, enjoy the most and have, you know, a, a deep, a deeper connection with or what, or just would get on my head are the pop songs, whether that's, you know, the fact that Glee made me, um, actually, um, like the journey song again, um, <laughs> after hearing, after hearing it too many times at various karaoke, um, events or, um, the one from this season, I think is a good, uh, good example, uh, is the, the Katy Perry song, um, the teenage dream that was done by sure. the, uh, the, the male acapella, the warblers, um, and also the, uh, the Florence and the machine song. That's the closing number, um, of the of the sectionals episode um, uh, are like I mean uh, are, 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 what, what's that? Oh, I was just I want Girl Talk to get on remixing that with Killing in the Name of right. Which one? The, uh, the... Well, make it make it Florence and the Rage Against the Machine, right? <laughs> Florence <laughs> against right, the I'm machine. Done. You guys, you Flor- guys take it here. Florence against the machine. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that was just my initial, uh, initial thought. I don't know if there's, there's anything deeper to that or, or what that, what that reflects. I mean, certainly, I mean, so there are two, the two models are, um, are sort of, of, are are the revival model, right? Where we're kind of going back to, we're going back to old things and kind of making them contemporary again, like, like, and it's never, it's not contemporary Broadway songs, you know what I mean? It's not, uh, it's not the Broadway of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson or Spring Awakening or of, you know, uh, uh, Shrek, 
the musical, or, yeah. you know, the Lion King, the musical, or like, you know, or any of the jukebox shows. And, it, and it's not even the 80s um, uh, Broadway of the really useful group. And there are shows like uh, Phantom Les Miserables, uh, uh, Miss Saigon. It yeah. did have uh, that one uh, Evita song in there. Right. Right. I was say, Andrew Lloyd Webber is like the uh, as close to recent as they get, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, just the one. It tends to be deeper cuts than that. And right. That's, right. And that, that's early Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know what I mean? That's not. I guess that's on that song is on the greatest hits record, you know what I mean? But like that's not his his um his uh most well known score, you know, like mm-hmm. Rainbow High, you know, the uh the waltz number, which is probably one of the, the best moments in that show that like um uh, <laughs> Totally beyond me. No idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah you're 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 alone. I think you just revealed which uh, between liking Constantine as your favorite emo song and that kind of says what side of the uh, of the worlds of glee that you're on. I have I I have uh, worked in in actual musical theater, so I am familiar with the literature. It's true. <laughs> um, so you know what I mean. It's it's the old it's older songs. Even the you know baby it's cold outside. Though I think not. It was never I think a a Broadway song. Uh, per se. I mean, it was written, I guess the song was sold to MGM, so it was in movies, you know, uh, and not Broadway plays. Like, it's a, you know, great American songbook song, and the, the Broadway songs that get that get revived are a lot of kind of great American songbook songs. So that's the, the revival model, and uh, Shoe, Mr. Shoe represents that as well, with the, the kind of the bad 80s rock, you know, um, revival stuff yeah. and then there's the then there's the contemporary kind of you know choral interpretations of of current top 40 model uh of you know of glee club which is which is less like the the selection of the song is a mark of outsider status and more the um the arrangement of the song is a mark of outsider status that was actually something I was thinking about, right? Is that like it doesn't matter what you sing if you have a show choir singing it it becomes outsider music. Right. Yeah, because of the because of the kind of the expectations of what high energy uh, in the performance and of you know I don't know kind of dorkiness, right? Right, right, and yeah, and I mean, and it just being a kind of music that uh, for all that Glee has been surprisingly popular, not a lot of people like to listen to acapella singing. You know, it's very off-putting stuff. It has not led to, it has not led to a renaissance in you know in show choirs. And yeah. yet, and yet, what NBC is right trying to capitalize on this with the um, oh, it's like the America's best. It's like the America's best dance crew of acapella choirs show, right? Yeah, the, uh, they tried to do that before. They tried to do that with uh, the Sing Off. I think it's called right. Yeah, Sing Off, which had like the whiffin' poofs in it and stuff. But they tried to. Um, they tried to do it before, though. With it was called like the choir or something like that, and like Michael Bolton. There were these celebrity <laughs> choirs that, you know, led by Michael, Michael Bolton. Bolton. Awesome. You know, uh, at least well, at least Sing Off takes real groups. You know, it it didn't um, create groups ad hoc to the show. It uh, it made real groups um, come in and, and uh, compete with one another. So speaking of groups competing with one another, one of the Glee episodes we were looking at today uh, is the one with the sectionals. Excellent segue. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Continue. (laughs) That is a fact. Correct. (laughs) You picked up the ball, Jordan. It's your job to carry it. Oh, no, I I fumbled. Um, 
we could talk a little bit about the the selection of songs for that. Or we could actually, and we could talk a little bit about what do you think it means that they're doing sectionals where they're no longer in the same section that they were, right? They're like completely different people to sing against than they uh, they had to sing against last time around. Is that just a laziness on the, the writer's part? Is it forgivable in that like you get to introduce more characters, these different choirs that uh, that they sing against? Well, the the... Yeah, I mean the old people one was a throwaway joke, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a throwaway last time around. Yeah, they, 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 I, I feel like it started with like we want a show choir called the Hipsters. What could that be? Oh, I know, old people with a hip right. replacement. Old people have hips with hip replacement. <laughs> yeah, they have issues. Hips are hips are kind of on the mind of old people. Um, yeah, I mean, I, look, I think that if you brought back the same people, there would be a lot of questions of like, well, why haven't we seen these people to now? What's happened with these people? Mm-hmm. Why haven't yeah. they? Why haven't they been introduced up to this point? You know? Yeah, that's true. I guess kind of the um, the interesting thing about it though is that they they fall into the same functional slots, right? Where they have like one gimmick school. Last time it was the school for the deaf. This time it's the uh, the hipsters, and then one sort of like a more legitimate threat. Uh, that they're up against. Yeah. Right. Um, so in this episode, Quinn says to Rachel, uh, the sectionals, um, is it, uh, she, yeah, it's this episode where she says to Rachel, you used to just be sort of unlikable, but now I feel, I, I pretty much feel like punching you every time you open your mouth. (laughs) And this is like Rachel, like, uh, she's become much less sympathetic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, over the course of this season, it's something that that we've talked about. But now she's she's pretty ugly for someone who's supposed to be the the star of the series, right? Uh, I, I kind of don't know where to hang my hat uh, as far as someone to identify with, um, you know, on this show because they're all they're all pretty horrible. <laughs> that's true. The other thing that's interesting is that she's just getting a lot less screen time than she used to. You know, well, it's one of these things, you know. It's the opposite of the West Wing, isn't it, right? Like, the West Wing was supposed to be this ensemble show where the president hovered in the background, but then Martin Sheen came on and kicked so much ass that it was like, okay, this is a show about the president and the staff kind of uh, flutters around him, you know? Um, this is the opposite, where it was like, well, this is, this is supposed to be a, um, a sort of stars and supporting player kind of show, but it turns out that the ensemble was so strong and people liked you know, all, mm-hmm. all these people. That's why Tina stopped stuttering. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I know they found a way that kind of fit in thematically with what they were trying to do. But, but unless you're Malcolm in the middle, you don't want a character with a speech impediment, you know, all the time. Uh, it, it, that's going to get pretty damn annoying. Pretty damn Fair enough. Well, well right. I mean, it's audience. like unless you're South Park and you have um, Jimmy, right, who's like part of the joke is, uh, is, is the speech impediment, right? Like, I think one of the the um, episodes that introduced the Jimmy character in South Park was a Christmas episode where he was singing his favorite Christmas song, which happened to be the 12 days of Christmas. Um, and, the, and the main joke is that it takes, you know, something like 12 hours to get through because of his stutter. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's when, uh, uh, that's when you want to have, what was the speech impediment in Malcolm in the middle? I don't remember. It's the, the um, uh, Malcolm's friend in the wheelchair. Oh, I forget his name. Um, who, who is always out of breath. <sighs> oh, and right, talk- yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, to their credit, they stuck that out, you know? Once they, <laughs> like, they didn't, you know, there, were, there was no miracle cure, and, like, to the end, that's, that's how that went. But, um, uh, 
you know, I don't know if you're if you're a hit show, a primetime weeknight primetime show on on Fox, you don't want to. Um, you don't want to do that, I think. So, so you know, so they cured her stutter by making it fake. Yeah, uh, especially a show that is as much about beautiful surfaces as Glee is about beautiful surfaces. Right. Like, you can't allow too much ugliness. Well, this is, a, I mean, this is an interesting thing. Like, the, there, there are more handicapped people, you know, the uh, 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 Glee's sister who has Down syndrome or her assistant Becky who has Down syndrome or Artie who's in the wheelchair. Uh, you know, like... This is more um, handicapped people than you see anywhere else on television, right? It's true enough. Uh, so you know there is there is a sense in in which um, this is a, this is more progressive in that it kind of shows the the human condition in all its you know in all its sort of messy glory, right? In all in all its in all its imperfection, um, rather than being a show like. I don't know what, like uh, Dawson's Creek or something, where there are no, there, there, are, there were no handicapped people in Dawson's Creek. Oh, someone's going to find a counterexample. I, I don't think there were. Well, actually, hmm. have you have you guys seen that uh, that rap song? Wait, am I am I talking? Yes. yes. Okay, my my bar wasn't moving. Have you guys seen that rap song where they like list all the black characters to ever appear on Friends? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's pretty funny. I'll, I'll track it down and uh, put it in the show notes. <laughs> it turns out there, there's more than you would expect, but still not that many. <laughs> um, it's like emo music. <laughs> yeah, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, it's like emo music. Well, can we talk about curing Artie's disability uh, a little bit, right? Like, because the the Tina Stutter one was the was the um, you just have to believe episode where it's like, well, can Artie walk again? And like, there may there may be a chance. And in the end, there wasn't. Um, like, you know, uh, even after even after giving us the fantasy dance number, which is kind of like having your cake and eating it too. Um, yeah. The. Uh, uh, you know, the the determination at the end was not, oh, God, there's hope. He may walk one day. Like, it, it was pretty uh, it, it was pretty definitive that, 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 you know, no, he can't. He doesn't have the particular strain of, of his uh, condition where, uh, I, I forget the details, but y- you know what I mean? Like, the, there was a chance, and it, it, it turned out to be no. Um, what do we think of Britney? Uh, I mean, a couple things. What, what do we think of Britney's wish for him to walk again what do we think that that wish is fulfilled in a certain way and also what do we think of the conspiracy to keep britney ignorant about santa claus and and isn't yeah. that isn't that kind of sinister it, well, i want I, I, I to start with the last i want to start with the last thing it's probably the most interesting hmm. i mean i i think that in some ways, this links with what you were mentioning with with Tina as well. Is that part of how that episode um, ended? I, I was, and I forget if this where this was in the sequence of that plot arc. But part of that episode, when Tina revealed that she was, you know, that the uh, the stutter was just a put on, Artie was not interested in her anymore. Right. Um, and you know that, and 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 that he was. I forget exactly how he put it, but like. You know that essentially he was interested in her because she was also you know damaged goods. Um, she was also different. She also had a, a disability of some kind. Um, and you know at first when we when you see Artie 
You know, I, I, when you see, you see Artie playing this card uh, again, but in a different way uh, earlier in this season when he's uh, first getting together with Brittany, where he's like, oh, you used me, you know, you used me um, because of my disability. But you, you kind of see as this plot arc is developing, and I don't know how far Gui is going to push this, but you know, that, that it seems that it, not that that Artie is or if Artie is using Brittany, it's not in the way that you would think. It's not that he's, you know, using her because she's a hot cheerleader, but it's because like, you know, it's that her, her stupidity is like kind of goes beyond dumb cheerleader, dumb blonde cheerleader jokes to being a actual, to actually, you know, believing in a magic comb and to, you know, believing in Santa Claus as a, um, you know, later, later teenager. Um, Although, like the magic comb one is honestly a lot more messed up. Like they, they lean on the Santa Claus one more, but I can imagine somebody believing in Santa Claus as a child and just never being told the fact that someone is literally able to like walk up to her on the street essentially and tell her this comb has magic powers and she totally buys it is very strange. Yeah. I mean, what do what do you make of that then? I mean, is that like, are, are we to believe that she is that stupid? <laughs> it's kind of the interesting thing. Like, I, I want to criticize the show for this, and yet it makes me a hypocrite to do it, because I've always said it doesn't matter that Glee is inconsistent about stuff, right? Like, I've gone on record <laughs> saying that many, many times. Um, but when you have something like this, like, sometimes her character is as stupid as they need her to be for the joke to work, right? Yeah, yeah. And then in the next episode, she's as smart as she needs to be, for the plot to progress. Um, and the thing is that like, there are times where she has to be so stupid that it becomes strange to tell these stories about her character anymore. You know, like if, if she's somebody who you can go up to her on the street and say like, this comb has magic powers and you're going to now behave differently because of the comb. And she totally believes you. Then having her be a character that has sex suddenly becomes very, very strange. I think. Right. <laughs> Well, a little bit. I mean, like, yeah, if, uh, that is to say she's kind of incapable of consent if her mental age is really so low. Mm-hmm. Although, right. I mean, this is something actually I – when I, I wrote about this, right, on, on the website a little bit. And I was doing some research and activists for people with, uh, with very low IQs will say that to think of them as if they have a mental age becomes damaging after a certain point. Um, okay, because well, fair, fair enough. That yeah. that is to say, if her if her cognitive, if she has such severe cognitive deficits, yeah, are you? But, well, but that like that that people who have severe cognitive deficits do become sexual beings because they have the same like they have the same drives as everybody else. Um, and where, where this typically comes up, like you'll find a lot of activists who will say that uh, two people with severe cognitive deficits who form a romantic relationship. Uh, need to be allowed to have uh, romantic relationships and need to be allowed to express their sexuality. You don't find a lot of people saying it's okay for one person with a severe cognitive deficit and another person who has no such disability um, to have a romantic or a sexual relationship. I couldn't find any, like, position on that when I was looking online. Well, <laughs> it, and, and that's in your uh, Google search history as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 and and here on uh, on the podcast of record for uh, 
<laughs> for teenager fucking. For, Let's fucking, for, yeah. for fucking teenagers and teenager fucking. <laughs> I wonder if you're a listener that, that that came to this to this podcast by googling teenager fucking. Please let us know in the show, comments to the show notes. <laughs> and if you stuck around this long, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, it's, Wait, like, how high are we on the search results for fucking teenagers? Anyhow, we're the uh, we're the top hit for uh, you know every, everything else. Oh, optimize that SEO, man. Everything else is porn, but uh, <laughs> but if you search for these fucking teenagers, it's us, baby. It's no, us. But what, what just about fucking teenagers? I'll, I'll check that right now. I'm going. I'm dropping Do. into. I'm dropping into anonymous mode on Google Chrome. <laughs> but not on this podcast. Sure, <laughs> there is no anonymous mo- uh, mode. Uh. <laughs> no, apparently not, because your students are so industrious. I know, but yeah, it's a it's a complicated issue uh, with 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 Brittany, and made more complicated by the fact that the show, for reasons which I understand, doesn't feel the need to decide. Uh, what her mental mental age or what her IQ actually is. You know, like that's not a part of her character that's consistent. I mean, this actually, it plays into a long tradition of how comedic, stupid characters are written, right? Right. Like jo- Joey Tribbiani on Friends is by, by no means appreciably smarter than Brittany Pierce on Glee. Part of the reason why you run into the problem, though, is that, uh, well, partially because she's female, right? And there's a double standard there. Um, partially because you have the the characters Sue's Sue's sister and Sue's assistant who are not played jokily uh, with their you know with their I think they both have Down syndrome right I mean yeah um, well I, I think what's interesting about Becky and and it's actually she's played in almost a different way, which may also be problematic, right? Mm-hmm. Is that she's portrayed as being of very, of comedically high capacity, right? That she is when, and during the, Sue's brief stint as the, um, as, as the school principal, right? She's, she's Sue's right hand, right? She has the, uh, the headset and clipboard. Um, right. and she's like the, the number one, um, you know, uh, you know, she's, she's like, you know, Sue's willing executioner, right? Like, um, and, 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 and we'll do, you know, whatever Sue says down to like in the Christmas episode, you know, dressing up like the rain dog, um, from, from the Grinch who stole Christmas. Right. Um, sure. and, and, and so it's on one hand, she's like, you know, it's this interesting, there's this complicated mix of ideas that on one hand, she's like, highly capable um and is is who sue relies on to really implement her her schemes um and but on uh the other hand you know so there's a little bit of what the undercurrent is that you know i feel like there's like a little bit of the not too deep under the surface there part of the joke or what is why that is interesting is that this person with a recognized um you know cognitive uh, developmental disability is um, is is high capacity, but then at the same time is also like unquestioning, right? That it's like is it sure. that with like an inability to you know with acceptance of like authority, right? Milgram plus, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> now, now with now with more obedience. Um. Well, and also just just to the degree that uh, that her being super competent is like it, it's kind of meant to be wacky in a way right which is it's a little bit hard to tell whether that's uh 
whether that's good or bad, you know, like it's problematic, definitely. Right. And complex, <laughs> very hard to form a position on. Matt. Yeah. Still Googling the uh, fucking teenagers. That's where Matt's been. Um. I can't, sorry, I, you start Googling and you start clicking around. You wouldn't believe what's on the internet these days. Um, yes, my, uh, my Google search history will attest that we are number one for these fucking teenagers, but for fucking teenagers, it's wall-to-wall porn. And I think my iPhone now has a virus. <laughs> An STD. Um... So, uh, uh, what about, what about baby? It's cold outside. Uh, speaking of, you know, um, things that are problematic. Speaking of, speaking of that 20 minutes ago. (laughs) Yeah. No, speaking of things that are problematic. So baby it's cold outside is, uh, we, we were all Wikipediaing this in like in, in synchronized Wikipedia before the show. Um, and it's, you, well, you can go to Wikipedia too. It's called the date rape Christmas song. If it's a song you've ever heard, you understand why it's called the Date Rape Christmas Song, right? I I, I don't, Jordan. Could you explain it to me? <laughs> I really don't think I need to. I mean, you have uh, you have the man and the woman singing in the the published sheet music. Apparently, the female voice is called the mouse, and the male voice is called the wolf. Um, and she says, "I really don't want to be here anymore. I'd like to go home." And he says, "No, no, don't go home. Have another drink." And uh, you're left to believe that uh, that she does not go home and she does have the drink. And there, there's one particularly troubling line where she says, hey, what's in this drink? Which probably, uh, when it was written, meant this has more alcohol in it than I thought it did. But it uh, doesn't read that way anymore, particularly. Mm, delicious. Now, there are a couple of things that are interesting about this. It was written, we found on Wikipedia, by Frank Lesser to be sung by him and his wife at a party they were throwing, a housewarming party they were throwing at their new house. So the the male and female voices in the song, as it was intended to be originally performed, are two people who live in the same house and are married. Not that there can't be uh, issues of sexual consent between a husband and wife, but, like, the roles that are being played there are clearly roles, right? Like, she doesn't have another home to leave and go to. She lives there. Um, She's not meant to be leaving. And she loved the song and thought of it as their song, that, like, it was their, their signature tune. So when Lesser finally sold it to MGM, she got mad at him. Um... But then this this sort of brings up another problem, which is that if you hear this song performed, it's never done straight so that you have the man who's trying to seduce the woman and the woman who's desperate to leave. Rather, it's sung the way that it was sung on Glee, where the the woman, uh, which was Kurt's role, and that's, that's a whole other issue, right, that he sings the woman, um, is just as into the impending sex act as the man is, but she's just sort of saying what, uh, what society would have her say as part of the flirtation. Um, and there's, there's the line I think that, uh, that sells that the most is she can, she says, at least I can say I tried. And depending upon how someone sings that it can sort of put a whole different spin on what the, the consent dynamics are in this relationship, well, the, right? I mean, the objections that are raised in the song are like, people are going to talk, my father's going to be waiting at the door. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? These, these um, 
you know, it's it's the battle of it, you know, it's a battle of super ego against uh, you know against sex drive, right? Like um, mm-hmm. the not even so much super ego against id as super ego against ego, right? Sure, yeah, it's it's the internalized. You know, it's the internalized voice of of authority, of you know, of society. Of the- yeah, again, the non du pair, man, we're all over it with this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, woman writes in white ink. Yeah. Um, but but that's also not completely unproblematic uh, because the gold standard for things that are okay sexually is full and enthusiastic consent, right? Like what what we're all told. <laughs> In those, Sorry, I don't know uh, why I laughed at that, but it's the, the gold standard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what we're all told in those, uh, you know, sexual harassment and uh, health seminars that you have to take wherever is that if you're in that situation where you have a, a lady over and you say, oh, come on, stay, and she says, oh, I really shouldn't, that your reaction should be to, like, turn off the stereo and show her to the door. Like, even if you're pretty sure that she wants to stay, if she says, oh, no, I really shouldn't, like, you have to kick her out yourself. Um, and, and maybe it's cold outside presents a universe in which that doesn't happen, right? A less, well, a less litigious universe. I mean, that sounds like... Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. I mean, from a lot of perspectives, you're, you're in that... I think that has to do with risk management and kind of litigious a litigious culture and liability more than anything, right? Because uh, philosophically, it's a clusterfuck, right? In that position, you're put in the... uh, In that situation, you're put in the position of kind of guarding the woman's honor or, you know what I mean, guarding her guarding her ability to consent you know what i mean like oh oh no i really shouldn't okay it's my job the man has to put you out now you Mm -hmm. know what i mean the man has to act on your behalf to uh to protect your in to protect your interests because you're you're incapable of of uh protecting them yourselves you know what i mean vulnerable to coercion yeah it's it's risk management from two perspectives one of them right is like well i might i might get uh in trouble if i don't do this so i have to like from game theory perspective i have to presume that uh, that that she means exactly what she says, and that or or that no, that she has uh, my worst interests at heart. So I can't like risk uh, doing anything other than uh, than kick her out of the out of the room. The other way that it's risk management, though, is that there's the risk that you don't understand what she means, right? That uh, that the oh well, at least I can say I tried uh, might not be the coy come on that it seems to be. You know, um, and and therefore you have to show her the door where she always has the option as you kick her out of saying, like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you know, let, let, let's go back in and uh, and put on another uh, Frank Lesser record or whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more or less, sir. <laughs> yeah, terrible. <laughs> I wonder if there's a way to. I wonder if it's ever sung in an even more coercive way. So, in some ways, I'm just reading through the lyrics now, and it reminds me of a recent episode of um, "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," um, in which the the gang buys a boat, um, and one of the characters is talking about the reason that he is really wants to buy a boat is that um, he, as he's telling one of the other characters, you you take you you pick up a girl, you take you out in the boat, you're out there in the high seas, and there's an implication, and the other guy, well, what's the implication? We well, you know that. 
you're at the high C, who knows what can happen? Like, so it, it will affect her decision making. They're like, wait, that sounds really sinister. Like, no, it's just an implication. It's just an implication. So I wonder if you can read or sing the, the song and that it's like, you know, not only like persuasion, but like actually the cold outside is actually a threat. That it's like, I am going to th- throw you into this terrible blizzard if you do not consent. <laughs> um, huh. that, but baby. That we're, we're already past leaving uh, voluntarily. Uh, the, what's, <laughs> what's the use in hurting my pride? Yeah, exactly. You could you could do a really really disturbing version of that song. But like the kind of the fascinating thing about it to me is that arguably the really disturbing version would be politically more okay. You know, like less ideologically troubling because then the the message that no means yes isn't there. No means no. It's just being uh, ignored in a way, right? Like, I don't know. Well, well, that's very, well, right. like, the, like the, line, the line, like, if you caught pneumonia and died, that's like, I mean, that to me reads like, you know, like this, this store's looking mighty flammable. Right, right. <laughs> you got, got a fragile looking immune system here. It'd be a shame if somebody were to spill influenza all over it. Just somebody to go and throw you outside because it's so cold out there. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, that I mean that's funny, J- Jordan. Like, where full-on sexual assault is in certain ways less troubling uh, politically, anyway. I guess. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the song sung that way would be pretty would, would be plenty troubling. It would no, be. Who troubling. would sing no, that? I mean, who who would sing that version? It would. Be, it would be troubling, but you, you would know. It would be clearer. It would be clearer who the bad guy is, right? Yeah, I mean, well the. <laughs> Society. It would be troubling, and, and <laughs> I knew you'd bring it back to emo music. <laughs> it would be no, troubling. no. When I say society, I say this as a as as, as a as a radical constructivist rather than rather than an angry teenager. <laughs> I think it would be Go troubling, on. and everyone would know it was troubling. Whereas with the sort of the normal version of it, again, you get into this kind of. Um, I know better. I know what's best for you, dear thing. Because, like, we all know that the normal version is troubling, right? That, that wasn't a shock to anyone on this podcast, probably not to anyone listening to this podcast. Like I said, if you've heard the song, you know why it's a troubling song. Um, but there's sort of the, the way that I was coming at it, and I'm actually backing off from my original point. I'm not sure I believe this anymore, was that it would be better if they did the sort of the the non-coy version because that way no one would be tricked into thinking that this sort of thing is just totally awesome but maybe no one was tricked into that to begin with you know yes (laughs) (laughs) nice I, I lost. I lost the. Uh, I lost the war of attrition there on on responding. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> ah, um, well, on, on that highly disturbing note. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we uh, we leave it there. Maybe. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's Glee through that's uh, sectionals and Christmas. We didn't really talk about the marriage episode, but. Um, you know that's okay. The the gay bullying episode, right? Uh, oh, there's probably a lot to talk about with that plot. Oh well, maybe we do have to do these things like sooner after the episodes come out, so, so that we actually remember. 
Yeah. <laughs> Remember. Let me say one thing. One thing about the wedding episode. Um, it's very standard for characters on a teen soap that at the parents' wedding they have a giant musical number about the relationship of these two kids, which would never happen at like an actual wedding, right? Well, like what, I was watching what that. Other I was teen, like, what other teen soaps are you thinking of? No, I just mean that uh, the the lives of the parents are just sounding boards for the lives of the teen characters oh, sure. that you really yeah, care yeah. about. Right. I mean, that's that's true in Dawson's Creek. It's true in uh, the OC. It's true in Gossip Girl. It's true in everything. Yeah, it's true I mean, it's, I, I'm imagining like a Charlie Brown special where two of those characters' uh, parents get married, right? And they would just be like wah 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 wah, and then uh, then the Peanuts kids would do what they uh, what they have to do actually on screen. Yeah, that's. Right, that's what it, every movie, and usually the parents are, are kind of, uh, Glia's, I guess, rec- represents a step forward in that, you know, the parents, the kind of mixed family that's, that's um, the kind of, you know, mini Brady Bunch that is constituted, uh, uh, right, is um, is at least not like most parents in, in teen entertainment, kind of the bad counterexample, you know, the thing that the kid never wants to be. You know, I don't want to be stuck in a loveless marriage like my parents, or I don't want to be, you know, uh, confined to the, like, the quotidian workaday, non-glamorous world like my parents are. At least, you know, Kurt's dad and uh, Finn's mom, you know, seem to be pretty happy and seem to have a pretty good thing going. No, that's true. What's interesting is that was like originally incidental to their originally being set up, right? That that the you know as it was portrayed initially, Kurt setting them up was motivated by his crush on Finn, right, and desire to get um, uh, get get close to Finn, right? It's an interesting like inversion of the the homosociality trope um, of here, like the like the the. Uh, the, you heterosexual, know. the heterosexual couple is a pretext for the homosexual couple. Yes, exactly. But, uh-huh. but they're like they're like heterocollateral damage, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? You... Well, it's, he- it's heterocollateral success. <laughs> like it's it's inc- it's incidental um, to the to the plan. I think um, it, you know it 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 it, uh, it, it acquires its own self sustaining logic. But that really had the marriage had had very little to do with the with with it's in, with the inception with it, with with how it was started. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> dum, dum. Sorry, did someone say Inception? What's, what's the Inception to Bone? <laughs> the, the uh, it, yeah, I mean, Kurt. Like, it's funny. Like, Kurt has a has a little bit of consciousness raising, right? Because he he in that episode where he, you know Finn, he realizes that like Finn can be a friend or like a brother. You know that there's there is a possibility for a relationship between men that is not. Um, uh, totally erotic, right? That, you know, like, being a teenager, you know, his life is sort of consumed by arrows. Uh, uh, being a fucking teenager, let's, let's say. Um, but it's, it's developmental. I mean, it, that is to say, it's a positive development um, that, uh, that there are more kinds of, there are more kinds of uh, uh, um, relationships possible than, than just the erotic ones. We just lost Jordan. Yeah, we'll get him back for the for the closing. Will we? <laughs> uh, will we?
Will we? Well, no, maybe we won't. So that, that's our show for today. Um, if you want to contribute, you can uh, you can call us back. It's uh, area, it's twenty fat jog zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. TFT podcast at overthinkingit.com. We're uh, at TFT podcast on the twitters, and we are. Um, Oh what! Uh, oh, and you can find us on the show notes on uh, on overthinking it, um, and you know find us, comment on the show notes. It's interesting. I, I have a feeling there's some good controversial discussion stuff in this episode. Um, yeah, especially whether or not Constantine is a good or bad emo song. <laughs> so you know, until you do, do it for the blah 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 blah. The oh, really, 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 really no. Our our listeners deserve better. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it again. I'll do it for our listeners who deserve better. I'll do it for my fellow podcasters who deserve better. But mostly, I'll do it for these fucking teenagers. Fucking teenagers.